Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity is a replay of a live broadcast titled Bridge to Understanding, Your Connection to Advancements in Psoriasis and PSA Treatments is provided by Forefront Collaborative and supported by an educational grant from AbbVie. Here's your moderator, Dr. Jennifer Cottle. To date, 16 biologics and novel small molecules are FDA-approved for treatment of psoriasis and or psoriatic arthritis, and many investigational drugs are in trials for both. This is an exciting time for the patients and medical community as complete skin clearance and prevention of arthritis disease progression becomes achievable goals for many patients. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle, and joining me to share highlights from the 2022 American Academy of Dermatology Annual Meeting, plus their insights on treatment of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, are Drs. April Armstrong and Alan Gabofsky. Dr. Armstrong is a professor of dermatology uh, at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. Dr. Grabowski is a professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine and a rheumatologist at the Hospital for Special Surgery. Drs. Armstrong and Dr. Grabowski, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me here. A pleasure, Jennifer. Well, we're excited that you're here. So I'd like to turn now our attention to a few housekeeping notes before we get started today. To submit questions during the presentation, please type them into the chat control panel on the left side throughout the program or in your comment box through Facebook Live. We'll try to answer as many questions as we can during the time allotted. We'll be asking you questions throughout the presentation, so please take out your phone and text ReachMD to 22333 to set up your phone. Alternatively, you can respond via your computer at pollev.com by entering ReachMD under username. So let's begin our program. Uh, let's start to, with our first question. Uh, with research proceeding apace, inclusion of newer therapies into clinical guidelines really requires ongoing modification and updating. Dr. Armstrong, let's start with you. What are the latest clinical practice guidelines to inform psoriasis treatment? Yes, Dr. Cottle, as you know that our psoriasis guidelines have been uh, updated extensively since it was published more than 15 years ago. And our guidelines currently have really uh, expanded the consideration of patients who would be suitable candidates for systemic therapies for psoriasis. For example, we typically think of patients who are candidates for systemic therapies, such as biologics or oral therapies, as those that are number one, um, have moderate to severe disease, and that is having around 10% or more greater surface body surface area involvement for their plaque psoriasis. But also importantly now, we consider patients who have psoriasis involving the special areas, for example, such as scalp, uh, intertriginous areas, the skin folds, palms and soles, those patients have psoriasis in those sensitive areas that can have a disproportionate impact on their quality of life. And therefore, we should also consider them as potential candidates for systemic therapy. And then finally, the third category are patients who have failed topical therapies. Uh, they should also be considered for systemic therapy. So as you can see, we've expanded our category and, and consideration of patients who will be appropriate for biological oral therapies. In addition to that, we have also extensively updated our guidelines 
for checking baseline labs in our patients about to be put on a biologic, as well as monitoring guidelines for those patients. And overall, those guidelines have really simplified compared to our previous uh, guidelines. Specifically for baseline evaluation, every patient uh, should get a TB evaluation uh, for those who are about to start a biologic, and then also check uh, CBC as well as CMP, hepatitis B and C. And now that's for uh, everyone at baseline. And if you wanted to check more due to specific circumstances or the region that you're living in, that is okay as well. For ongoing evaluation, tuberculosis evaluation is recommended for those who are on TNF inhibitors, as well as those who may be at high risk for contracting TB. So those are some of the key uh, guidelines in terms of some of the highlights on the updates. Excellent. And Dr. Kabofsky, what could you say about the latest clinical guidelines for the treatment of psoriatic arthritis? Well, Dr. Cardell, we have three major guidelines that are in play in the clinical community. Uh, the first two are shown here. Those are the ULAR um, 2019 guidelines and the um, combined American College of Rheumatology uh, National Psoriasis Foundation guidelines updated in 2018. And uh, this is a stepwise progression of what therapeutic alternatives we have. In the next slide, you can see the, uh, the research group against psoriatic arthritis treatment recommendations, perhaps the most uh, new of the recommendations. And uh, these tend to focus more on um, the domains that are involved, the presence or absence of previous therapy, um, to a certain extent, comorbidities, that may uh, alter the ability to give one or more drugs. But I would say that all three of these guidelines, however used, do stress the notion of assessing disease activity, um, reassessing disease activity uh, at least every three months once a therapeutic decision has been made and uh, looking at things like um, uh, body surface area, looking at things like uh, areas affected, looking at things like domains affected, comorbidities, and the presence or absence of um, uh, other social factors that one has to take into account when treating patients as well. Uh, all of them tend to stress different ways of looking at the disease, but all of them tend to seek the best outcome for the greatest number of patients, a logical adoption of a sequential and logical evidence-based approach to treatment. Excellent. And Dr. Armstrong, could you elaborate on how the guidelines are being implemented in practice? You know, what are some of the learnings here? Yes, when we are thinking about these guidelines and how they are really practicing in clinical setting, uh, first of all, typically for a patient with plaque psoriasis who comes to dermatologists, for example, the first decision point in that triage is really deciding whether the patient has psoriatic arthritis or not. This is very important because regardless of the amount of the skin psoriasis involvement, if the patient has active psoriatic arthritis, then our choice of therapy should be a systemic therapy that addresses both the joint as well as the skin signs and symptoms. Reason being that uh, the joint signs and symptoms, especially the joint signs are uh, can be irreversible if untreated. Uh, 
Now, if the patient does not have active psoriatic arthritis, then we focus on the extent of skin disease. If the patient has mild or localized skin disease, then the typical therapies are topical therapies or targeted phototherapy. Now, topical therapies use much more often than the latter. And then for patients with a more moderate to severe disease, then we think about concurrently the use of biologics and or oral therapies and or phototherapy. Also, I mentioned that two other cases where patients have psoriasis in the sensitive areas or if they have uh, not responded to the conventional topical therapies, then we want to also consider the use of systemic therapy in those patients. I think uh, there have been a few studies looking at the use of systemic agents uh, in the psoriasis population. And what was interesting is that uh, clinicians who, for example, have high volume of patients or who does not have uh, much time that uh, don't have the time luxury to spend as much time with the patients, oftentimes their patients are less likely to be recommended a systemic therapy. In addition to that, our patients living in the rural regions oftentimes have lower access to systemic therapy as well. Okay, and thank you for that. Um, staying with you, Dr. Armstrong, when a therapy for a patient with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis and or psoriatic arthritis doesn't work, how do you approach escalating therapy? Yes, so when a FDA-approved uh, standard dosing for, for example, biologic is not working, the first question I ask is whether this patient is someone who has never really responded to the initial therapy or someone we consider a primary failure versus someone who initially actually responded to therapy but then lost response over time, someone we considered a secondary failure. So in those patients who have never responded optimally to the initial biologic of choice, for example, then the optimal next course is typically considered switching class altogether. So for example, if the patient has been on a, an IL-17 class of uh, medication, and we do wanna try these patients for, in most patients for at least six months to see if they have any response. If they don't have any response, um, then we might wanna consider switching that patient to an IL-23 class of medications or vice versa. Now, for patients who have had a response to a medication initially, but then lost response, in those patients, our options are more numerous, typically divided into uh, these three categories. Number one is that we could possibly increase the dose for that particular patient. And the strategy here is not increasing the dose per administration, but rather oftentimes using the same dose, but shorten the uh, duration in between uh, shots. And then number two is that we can consider even switching to another agent within that class. There are mechanistic differences uh, among the different agents in the particular class and also dosing differences. So potentially another agent from the same class could work. Uh, of course, the third option is that this patient can be switched to a whole different class of biologics to see if that might be a better option for this particular patient. Mm, that's very helpful. And Dr. Begof uh, excuse me, Dr. Gabowski, um, is the approach you use to treat patients with psoriatic arthritis who are not achieving the target outcomes similar to what Dr. Armstrong just explained, or are there <clears throat> any additional considerations? Well, they're, they're pretty similar. I think the only thing I would uh, reemphasize is that we tend to reevaluate patients every three months rather than every six, uh, largely because of the fact that we're dealing with pain and prevention of bone erosion. Um, uh, the latter of which tends to be irreversible once identified. So our um, interval evaluations are um, a little bit more frequent. 
But we also use the same strategies of, um, of switching within a class, switching between classes, depending upon where the patient is. It's a well-observed phenomenon that you can have two patients in your waiting room on the same medication, and one swears by it and one swears at it. So this is where you have to practice the art of medicine as well as the science. Uh, we have another consideration, and that is related to the fact that you mentioned we have 16 biologic therapies, but we also have the conventional synthetics. And so you can add a conventional synthetic to a biologic, and then you can get multiple more therapies. Now, one would never add two biologics at the same time, but the use of combination therapy versus monotherapy is something that is uh, widely used um, in our practices uh, because of the observation that in some patients, um, the presence of both the biologic and the conventional synthetic, usually but not always methotrexate, leads to greater efficacy. Indeed, uh, that is probably true for skin disease, although it may be less so as we've seen for certain uh, conditions of that, for certain drugs rather, uh, or combinations of that are being used to treat joint disease. Uh, we consider the domains affected, we consider comorbidities, we consider disease activity, and also as um, uh, Dr. Armstrong alluded, we, can, we consider the presence of uh, other medications that the patient may have received before coming to us, as well as the medications that the patient has been on while under our observation. So um, all of these taken together are comprising the therapeutic approach that we use, which is largely similar to what um, Dr. Armstrong does, but with the nuances that I mentioned. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, Dr. Grabowski, staying with you, how could you describe the evolving therapeutic landscape for the psoriatic uh, disease? Well, as you can see on the next slide, we have uh, multiple classes of medication, and we have for the classes um, multiple agents within most of the classes that you see. Uh, it's important to mention that some of the drugs that are approved for psoriasis are not approved for psoriatic arthritis, and some of the drugs that are approved for psoriatic arthritis are not approved for psoriasis. So when treating a patient, one has to be aware of what it is that you're treating and what the major domain that's affecting their quality of life is that they, they're seeking relief for. Um, once we go through the, uh, the choice of agents, as I mentioned a few moments ago, and the different combinations that we have, we also think about, hmm, what might be out there? Hmm, can we get this patient into a clinical trial, perhaps, of one of the newer agents? But that tends to be for the more refractory patient for whom uh, the agents that you see on this slide generally have not been particularly effective. Mm. Thank you for that. And Dr. Armstrong, what are some of the promising novel systemic therapies in development for psoriasis? There are two systemic therapies that are in late phase development, one biologic called bimikizumab and another oral agent called ducravacitinib. So I'm going to share some of the data from the American Academy of Dermatology that was uh, unveiled recently. Looking at bimikizumab, which is a novel 
biologic that targets both IL-17A as well as IL-17F. It's currently being evaluated by the FDA at the time of this conversation that we're having. Um, and it's novel in that it's really helping us to understand the role of IL-17F in psoriasis and that IL-17F is critical in addition to A in terms of psoriasis pathogenesis. So when we look at the clinical trial results from bimikizumab, what we noted is that it has a quite deep response. So what I mean by that is that um, around 62% of the patients that were treated with bimikizumab achieved POSI 100, so complete clear uh, clearance of skin disease uh, at week 16. And very importantly, when we're thinking about complete clearance at two years' time, so these patients followed out for two years, what was seen is that over 80% of them are still completely clear at two years. So this is something uh, that is uh, quite uh, uh, unparalleled uh, in terms of the, uh, the robust efficacy that, uh, that we've seen before. So we're very excited as a field in terms of having another agent uh, that have a deep uh, therapeutic response for our patients. Next, please. And when we look at the safety of the um, analysis of the pool data, what was also seen is that responders also had a robust response in terms of elimination of a lot of the symptoms that are associated with psoriasis, probably not surprisingly. Uh, and those include, for example, itch, skin pain. So bimikizumab has effects on all of those domains, as well as on dermatology quality of life, uh, where we saw substantial improvement. Next, please. And then in terms of the uh, health-related quality of life and whether if you're wondering uh, if bimikizumab had a differential effect on those who have had biologics in the past or those who are bio-naive, what we showed is that bimikizumab had a similar uh, deep response in both of those populations. So this was encouraging to see. Next, please. There were also a number of head-to-head -head studies that were uh, unveiled as well. Bimikizumab versus Secukinumab, this particular study is special because it's our first IL-17 versus IL-17 inhibitor study. And here we are able to see perhaps the additional inhibition in terms of IL-17F and what that does clinically. And what was shown was that patients who were treated with bimikizumab uh, had superior clinical response compared to those patients who were treated with secukinumab uh, in terms of both the primary uh, response in terms of one year uh, period of time, but also more patients had earlier response with bimikizumab. Uh, in addition to that, patients who uh, had been on secukinumab who then switched to bimikizumab, those patients also uh, achieved similar responses as those patients who had stayed on bimikizumab uh, to begin with. Next, please. In patients uh, who were treated with bimikizumab uh, with psoriatic arthritis, so here's a PSA study looking at bimikizumab. This is a phase 2B study. Uh, what was found is that those patients who had uh, been treated with bimikizumab had a robust response in terms of their joint response, but also uh, many of those patients had skin disease as well. So we saw both uh, good clearance in terms of both joint as well as skin disease. In terms of safety, bimikizumab is overall well tolerated. Um, there uh, is a low rate of oral, uh, oral candidiasis that was seen in patients treated with bimikizumab, but overall mild or moderate and was treated without a discontinuation of bimikizumab. Next, please. 
And then we're going to go to ducravacitinib. Ducravacitinib has a unique mechanism action uh, in that it inhibits TIC2, which is an enzyme that's very important in terms of psoriasis pathogenesis. It's central to mediating the pathways of IL-20 three, as well as IL-12, uh, as well as type 1 interferon. So what we saw in the clinical trials with ducravacitinib is that we learned, number one, ducravacitinib uh, appears to be superior to a premolast, uh, which is an approved oral agent for psoriasis, as well as psoriatic arthritis. And in addition to that, those patients who have failed a premolast uh, seem to have also responded to ducravacitinib. So this speaks to some of the excitement around having a highly efficacious oral agent about to be introduced to our realm of tools for our patients with psoriasis. Next, please. Studies was also done in terms of uh, looking at ducravacitinib and its effects in psoriatic arthritis. And what was seen is that ducravacitinib exhibited similar efficacy for the treatment in patients with PSA, uh, regardless of whether they had background uh, uh, conventional DMARDs. So this is uh, also quite exciting. Here we have another oral agent, uh, has a good tolerability and safety profile uh, in that it had very little laboratory uh, disturbances. Um, and uh, I think this will be a good uh, option for patients with not only psoriasis, but also psoriatic arthritis as well. Excellent. <clears throat> Excuse me. For those of you who are just joining us, this is a live CME broadcast on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Caudill, and joining me to talk about advancements in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis treatments are Dr. April Armstrong and Dr. Alan Gabowski. As a quick reminder, you're able to submit questions for our Q&A session at the end of this program by typing them into the chat control panel on the left side of your screen or in your comment box through Facebook Live. And additional, uh, additionally, we will be asking polling questions during our case discussion. You can participate by texting ReachMD to 22333 or by going to pollev.com and entering ReachMD under username. So, Dr. Armstrong, let's, let's go back to you for a moment. Uh, what other evidence was presented and discussed during the AAD meeting that you'd like to highlight? Yes, um, there were so many great posters and oral presentations that were presented at the AAD meeting, and I'm going to highlight some of the, especially in the systemic realm, I'm going to highlight some of those. So first, let's take a look at our IL-17 inhibitors. Uh, we learned about male psoriasis with ixekizumab from the meeting, and what was shown is that patients who are treated with ixekizumab who had nail disease, many of them had pretty significant improvement, so about 85% improvement and their nail disease out to about five years of time. And nearly half of them achieve complete nail clearance. So this is something uh, that's quite exciting and positive in terms of uh, looking at one of our IL-17 agents and, if, and its efficacy in nail psoriasis. Next, please. Uh, when we look at Ixikizumab long-term safety these days, it's all about long-term safety for our approved medications. What we saw is that the five-year long-term safety uh, looks quite reassuring for Ixikizumab, no new safety signals. The main thing we will continue to remind ourselves in terms of IR, our IL-17 inhibitors is to avoid use in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And we can also treat low rates of oral candidiasis when it occurs. Next, please. We also looked at brodalumab, which is one of our IL-17 inhibitors that has a very unique mechanism action in that it's not a cytokine 
inhibitor. It's a receptor inhibitor. And what we saw is that with brodalumab uh, these days, often used as perhaps not the first line agent, but, uh, or, uh, but perhaps second or third line agent, is that many of the patients go to brodalumab after they have failed other biologics. And even in this difficult to treat population, about 44% of them still achieved complete clearance at week 26. And I think that speaks to the robustness of brodalumab in terms of its uh, clinical efficacy, but also speaks to the unique mechanism action, uh, how patients who may have failed other biologics could still respond well with brodalumab. Next, please. Now we're going to talk about secutinumab, uh, the first uh, IL-17 agent that was approved for plaque psoriasis. And what was known is that with a long-term safety data, uh, we saw similar to ixekizumab is that we did not see any new safety signals uh, it, with secutinumab. So, so no news is good news here. Uh, and uh, we can continue to uh, inform our patients of these uh, reassuring long-term uh, safety results. Next, please. Uh, there was an interesting study that looked at ustekinumab failures. So patients who had not responded to ustekinumab, and uh, then they randomized those patients to either getting secukinumab or getting gaselkumab. We know that ustekinumab's main mechanism action is through IL-23 uh, inhibition. So here we're looking at these patients. If you um, randomize them into then an IL-17 agent or another IL-23 agent, whether you will see any differences. Now, mind us that this is a a small study, only 40 patients were included, but what was found was that 60% of the patients who were randomized to the secukinumab group had achieved clear or almost clear at week 16 compared to 40% in the gaselkumab group. This was not statistically significant, probably likely due to the small sample size. Um, however, it was helpful and instructive in terms of uh, looking at some of the mechanistic differences and how we may think about that in terms of uh, treating patients who have failed to one particular class of medications. Next, please. And then going on to our IL-23 inhibitors, gaselkumab, as we know, uh, many of our patients have benefited greatly from gaselkumab. And what we learned is that patients who had been a responder tend to respond in long-term uh, in uh, terms of, to gaselkumab. And what was also seen is that almost regardless of their baseline uh, disease activity, they could be moderate or they could be quite severe. Uh, gaselkumab's clinical response seemed to be equally effective in both of those groups. In addition to that, it doesn't seem matter if the patient had uh, experienced biologics in the past or were biologic naive. Uh, gaselkumab also had equal uh, penetration in terms of the depth of response in both of those uh, patient populations. So that is uh, something I think we are continuously seeing with our advanced therapies in biologics and their deep response in our patients. Next, please. And then uh, finally, looking at the gaselkumab safety data, uh, the good news there is that uh, we did not see any uh, new signals uh, with our IL-23 class of medications, so quite reassuring, and that we can continue to reassure our patients who are on these medications of the safety record of our IL-23 class of medications. Next, please. 
Just kind of rounding out our on our 20, uh, 23 class of medications, Tildrakizumab, uh, which uh, also targets IL-23. What was seen is that uh, for patients who responded well to Tildrakizumab, they also tend to maintain that response over time. So as you can see, over 80% of the patients on Tildrakizumab, 100 milligram group, had POSI score of less than three. So this is absolute POSI score of less than three, which is clinically meaningful in most of their visits. And in addition to that, uh, the medication continues to appear safe and well tolerated among our patients. Next, please. Going to our uh, last IL-23 inhibitor, uh, Rizinkizumab. Rizinkizumab, as we know from its uh, uh, clinical studies, parent studies, has a really high response rate for our patients. And when the patients are followed out to 4.5 years, uh, as we can see, over 50% of the patients uh, maintain clearance at five years, which is quite encouraging. Next, please. And uh, we cannot forget about uh, rizinkizumab in our patients with psoriatic arthritis through the Keepsake 1 and 2 study. And what was seen here is that significantly greater proportion of patients um, have achieved clinically meaningful endpoints in terms of ACR20 um, and minimal disease activity, and as well as a number of other uh, index indices for psoriatic arthritis compared to those with placebo, therefore gaining its approval in psoriatic arthritis last year. Next, please. And emphasizing the safety of our IL-23 class, uh, also long-term safety data for rizinkizumab is also quite reassuring. And I think one thing I would just wanted to emphasize is that our IL-23 class of medications, uh, you don't have to inject these medications very frequently. It's an infrequent injection. So typically once every eight weeks or every 12 weeks, which can be quite convenient for our patients. Great. Thank you so much for that. Janus kinase or JAK inhibitors belong to a new class of oral targeted therapies in the therapeutic landscape for immune-mediated diseases. Recently, uh, the FDA expanded safety warnings and restricted use of the approved JAK inhibitors. So what does it mean for treating psoriatic disease? It, and is there any new evidence about the safety of JAK inhibitors? Um, well, first I have to point out that when we talk about psoriatic disease, uh, we have to differentiate in this instance with, for this therapy between psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. There are three approved uh, JAK inhibitors in the United States, tofacitinib, baricitinib, and uh, upadacitinib, and none of them are approved for the treatment of psoriasis, and only two of them, tofacitinib and uh, upadacitinib, are approved for the treatment of psoriatic arthritis. So that would be the first thing. Now, what you can see on this slide is that when tofacitinib, which was the first agent in the class to be approved a number of years ago, um, was approved, the FDA required that the manufacturer do a long-term observational study comparing tofacitinib at two doses, one of which is approved, the five milligram dose, and one of which was investigational, but patients were allowed to continue on it, though it was not approved, the 10 milligram dose, they were required to do a long-term study comparing the tofacitinib doses to the standard of TNF therapy at alimumab. And what they found in this study, this long-term extension study, was that there appeared to be an increased risk of heart attack, of stroke, a numerical increase, as we'll see in a moment, of malignancy, 
in the JAK inhibitor tofacitinib treated patients as compared to the TNF inhibitor treated adalimumab population. Um, this led to a risk, uh, this led to a, uh, the agency taking two actions. The first is a class label, whereby all of the three agents that I've mentioned were given a warning about the potential for major adverse cardiovascular events, DVT, and malignancy, even though it was only demonstrated in the tofacitinib study that I've shown you. Um, in addition, the FDA also restricted the use of a JAK inhibitor following a TNF inhibitor so that the, the JAK inhibitors could not be a first-line therapy anymore, unlike the other agents that we've been discussing. And I'll just conclude by showing the next slide, um, which is the uh, numerical increase of malignancy that was seen in the tofacitinib patients as compared to the adalimumab treated patients uh, in the next slide. Excellent. And Dr. Gabowski, staying with you, uh, what information about different characteristics of systemic therapies is important to discuss with your patients when developing a treatment plan? Well, obviously patients do wanna know about um, the frequency of injection or whether it's an infusion, whether one can take an oral molecule, route of administration is certainly important uh, as well as frequency. Uh, but um, one also needs to do more than just give informed consent as we understand it, which is the risks, benefits, and alternatives. Um, I like to go into the process, which I refer to as shared decision-making, which is an interactive two-way process between the patient and me, um, trying to give them this information and assessing their health literacy, assessing their understanding in a supportive atmosphere of mutual respect. I need to create this atmosphere, classify their concerns. Um, I need to identify all of the information that they're seeking for, both on this slide and the next, and then allow them the opportunity to make an informed decision based on their values and preferences. Um, merely giving a patient a brochure to read and saying, come back when you make up your mind is not the way to do it uh, because numerous studies in all fields of medicine have demonstrated that the more involved the patient is in, uh, as a partner in their own care, the better the outcome is going to be. That's, those are very excellent points. And Dr. Armstrong, do you have anything to add to that? Yes, uh, adding on to uh, what Dr. Gabowski already said, um, I would just like to add, oftentimes I do uh, watch out for patients' body language. Um, and uh, the reason for this is that sometimes they can have concerns or they may not agree with what we recommend. And oftentimes they may not bring it out explicitly. So if I see if there's any hesitance um, or if they're frowning, I typically would actually stop and ask them uh, if they have any questions or if they have any concerns, um, thereby really listen to what their particular concern is. And if I can address their concern first, then that can help really increase some of the treatment adherence uh, that we'll, we will see uh, in the long term. Also quite excellent points. Thank you for that. 
so now as we transition to our case study, just a reminder that during registration for this live program, we asked all users to let us know which case study interested them the most. For this time slot, it seems that the majority of our viewers wanted to learn more about case number three, a 33, excuse me, a 33-year-old black woman with low back pain and a two-year history of mild psoriasis. I'll now pass it over to Dr. Grabowski to tell us more about his case. Um, so this is, a, uh, as you indicated, a, a young um, black woman who presented with um, psoriatic arthritis. I think there is a, a um, um, and uh, presented indicating that she really had back pain as her primary presentation. Um, she was, um, uh, she had a normal physical examination. Um, she uh, had no active medical problems. She did have a two-year history of mild psoriasis, which was limited to the scalp and controlled with topical shampoos, actively employed. Um, she predominantly had back pain, as I mentioned, difficulty while doing light cleaning in the house and uh, taking care of her, her children. Um, the pain began about four months ago, intermittent, worse in the mornings, and there was no history of trauma. She was a runner in college and still likes to jog, but finds it more difficult to do this uh, because of wear and tear. She denied fever or any other pain in her joints or worsening of her scalp psoriasis. Next slide, please. As I mentioned, her physical exam is normal. Her joint exam was normal. She had um, limitation of forward flexion and mild tenderness to percussion over her lower back. And um, she understands, she's a, an extremely intelligent woman who understands that she's at risk for psoriatic arthritis, even though she had no joint swelling and was surprised by this. And her scalp psoriasis and the, the activity of it really hasn't changed. And she's not experienced any worsening or um, any additional skin rash. So we begin to talk about a phenotype of psoriatic arthritis namely the axial phenotype and how difficult that can be to diagnose. And uh, x-rays do show that she had sacroiliitis and early ankylosis of two lumbar vertebrae. Next slide, please. Um, what you see here are the CASPAR criteria, which were designed to help identify homogenous groups of patients for clinical studies, but are also used diagnostically as well to try and get at whether a patient with a known diagnosis of psoriasis who then develops joint pain, in fact, has psoriatic arthritis or some other etiology of joint pain. Not all joint pain in patients with psoriasis is psoriatic arthritis. Hence the need to use these classification criteria to hone down whether one is dealing with a true inflammatory arthritis or a mechanical arthritis. Next slide, please. And I've alluded to the radiographic findings that um, Ms. Smith had in her lower back. Uh, patients with psoriatic arthritis can also have destruction of cartilage and bone in other areas as well. Uh, if they have a peripheral form of arthritis, they will see joint erosions, and they may very well see the so-called pencil and cup deformity when there is joint space flaring and joint erosion on the other side as a result of new bone formation, periostitis, 
ankylosis, enthesitis, and numerous other things. And as I've mentioned, uh, axial psoriatic arthritis may have fusion of, of the sacroiliitis of various grades, one to four, and a syndesmified formation, as well as a disc disruption. Next slide, please. An obvious uh, problem is that one can't use the laboratory very much because it's what the patient doesn't have that often helps you make the diagnosis. Now, in this instance, Joan was on non-steroidals um, that she was taking as well as a prescribed uh, definite course, and she had no response to therapy. So what would the recommended treatment be in a patient with um, no response to therapy? And wow, um, initially everyone said abacacep, and then there was a change uh, so that now we're equally split up. We're still equally split over the third choice. Um, oh, no, the TNF inhibitors are in the lead. And uh, let me give you another five second countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. Oh, you're changing your minds. You should always go with your first impression. Okay, let's go to the answer. So the group appeared to be evenly split. Um, between a TNF inhibitor and abacacep with a respectable minority uh, giving a premolast, as I recall. And it's a little bit of a trick because all of those agents are indicated for the treatment of psoriatic arthritis. But as I mentioned before, one has to be concerned with the phenotype of the disease, axial versus peripheral, and the domains affected. And the 2021 GRAPA recommendations do suggest that in a patient with axial disease and no peripheral involvement that has failed to re respond to a course of non-steroidals, the best choice would be a TNF inhibitor. There are five agents in that class and any of them can be used in this patient. Next slide, please. So um, you confirm with her the axial phenotype of psoriatic arthritis. And now the question is, what are you gonna treat her with and how are you going to deal with any questions you have? So you bring her back into your consulting room and you tell the staff that you don't wanna be disturbed as you're with her. The likelihood of not being disturbed is low, but you want the patient to hear that you don't want to be disturbed as a prelude letting the patient understand that you are now going to focus your attention on her and not be distracted by other things going on around you. You go through the issues of um, the routes of administration of all the agents available, the frequency of administration, the risks, benefits, and alternatives. You attempt to ascertain after each discussion what she understands and whether she has any questions and um, she then tells you she'd prefer self-injection as infrequently as possible versus infusion. You then arrange for your office administrator to check what you can get for her based on her coverage. And um, she's very grateful to you as she leaves to learn about her diagnosis and her options. Can we have the next slide, please? So, your interaction with Joan best exemplifies what? And you've got five choices to make. Up, oh, everyone is quickly going for shared decision making, but I'll give you a chance to make to change your mind if you want to. 
uh, this is a democracy, but the right answer isn't going to be done by the numerical choice. Except in this instance, go with your first gut. Shared decision-making. This is not precision medicine. You've not done anything to uh, uh, determine her genotype. You've not determined anything to determine specific genetic risk factors. Um, you did fulfill the elements of informed consent. As I've mentioned, shared decision-making does include informed consent. But you went beyond that. You gave her the information she needed. You gave her a supportive environment. You did not impose a decision. You did all you could to support her. And this is a good example of shared decision-making. So this is the best answer uh, of the alternatives that were presented. Excellent. Thank you so much for that um, interesting and uh, informative case, Dr. Gabowski. Um, this has been a, a wonderful program, and I'd like to transition now to our question and answer to make sure that we can at least get one question in before our time uh, runs out. Um, this question is going to be directed towards Dr. Armstrong. The question is, what should be the first treatment in a patient with mild to moderate psoriasis who failed topicals and phytotherapy, excuse me, phototherapy? Great. Sometimes plant therapies can work uh, at certain times, but uh, um, the uh, so yes, a great question. Um, so when they have mild to moderate uh, psoriasis and they failed topical or phototherapy, we can think about systemic therapies. In fact, one of our oral agents, Premalast, uh, recently the indications have expanded uh, to include psoriasis uh, of, of essentially all severity. Um, so they, a patient may have mild to moderate, but if they don't respond to the topical uh, modalities, uh, Premalast is actually FDA approved to, uh, to be uh, treated uh, to treat these patients. I would say that uh, that being said, uh, many of our biologics these days are, uh, we're starting to investigate their efficacy in patients with mild to moderate uh, severity of psoriasis. Now, none of them are approved for mild uh, psoriasis, uh, but the key thing I think uh, where the field is going is that if the safety profile looks good, uh, then uh, what are some the, uh, then we wanna consider the, the benefit risk profile and uh, is there a rationale not to treat our patients who have not responded to topical therapies with uh, potentially uh, biologic therapies if they have mild to moderate disease. So I think uh, stay tuned for some of the uh, clinical uh, data on that, uh, but certainly I think the field is starting to move in that direction. If I can just Excellent. comment, Dr. Cordell, yes. um, many of the patients that are referred to me in situations just like this in fact, do come on a Premalast because a Premalast does not require laboratory monitoring as all of the other agents do. And it's, so it, it's relatively easy to take and relatively easy to monitor the patient clinically for response or non without the inconveniencing the patient to have to come in for repeated blood draws and, and urine analyses. So a Premalast would be an excellent option for that patient. As I indicated, many of the patients that are referred to me in that situation generally do come in on the Premalast. 
Thank you so much for adding that, Dr. Kubowski, and thank you, Dr. Armstrong, for your answer. I wish we had more time for questions, but um, this was excellent, and I, I really cannot thank you enough for this wonderful program. Um, thank you, Drs. April Armstrong and Dr. Alan Kubowski. You, you really helped us better understand the advancements in the treatment of psoriatic disease. I, I do want to say very quickly before we close, um, there are two other cases uh, that we prepared for you as well, so if you'd like to see those and review those, please download them at um, uh, the website, reachmd.com slash psoriatic disease. Uh, Dr. Armstrong and Dr. Grabowski, it was great working with you today. Thank you for having me. Same. Thank you, Dr. Corbel. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To receive your free CME credit and to download resources, go to reachmd.com slash psoriatic disease and keep an eye out for our follow-up survey next month. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.